Hello, it's Friday 25th of November. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will be rounding up the top eight travel news stories from across the region in November. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So we're back after a two-week interlude, and today we're discussing the eight top talking points in Southeast Asian travel and tourism. And the list that we've actually selected takes us to eight different countries across the region. So Hannah, we've got plenty to talk about. Let's dive in. What's up first? Let's go to Indonesia first. And there's a couple of interesting things that have come out of Indonesia. Um, one is this this massive number about year-end travel. And of course, you know, year-end travel is a peak travel period within Southeast Asia, not just for Indonesia, but for, for many of the countries in the region too. Um, and so the Transport Ministry has said that they expect mobility to reach 60.6 million people during the year-end holidays. So they said that's about 22.4% of the total Indonesian population are going to be on the move. So on the move domestically and internationally, is that what it means? Well, it doesn't quite specify, but I presume it's domestic, actually, because um, they, they're not really talking about international travel in there. I think that they're talking about purely kind of domestic population are going to be on the move during the Christmas and the New Year holidays to, to go back home, I presume, or, or just take a vacation somewhere yeah interesting i mean where do you come up with that figure i mean it's, it's interesting i mean you could do the most sophisticated modeling possible and you would come up with a figure 60.6 million but everybody we talk to in the travel industry at the moment tells us that booking windows are very very compressed very very short so how would you actually know how can you actually make that prediction <laughs> yeah i mean it, it always comes down to how, how can you forecast you know especially post-pandemic or not even post-pandemic, are we, especially coming out of this pandemic? Or, or, you know, you don't have any historical data to refer to. I presume that they're looking back on what happened last year or, or perhaps over um, Hari Raya, Lebaran, as they call it, this year. And this is going to be a peak travel period. And perhaps it's more kind of getting the regions um, in Indonesia ready for that in terms of, you know, making sure that you've got the police checkpoints around and, you know, airports are preparing to gear up for, for that volume of, of travellers. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's absolutely right. It will be a peak travel season. And as you said, there's, it's sort of been progressive. The public holidays across this year as, as travel confidence comes back, there are more people are travelling. And, and as we've seen, Indonesians are um, willing to travel domestically. So the numbers will be high. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge country with a huge population and so many different places to travel. And experience it's just strange of where that actual figure comes from because normally like we're used to the numbers being rounded up aren't we so but this one is 60.6 million people or 22.4 population which suggests there is some sophisticated modeling behind it or perhaps it's just pulled out of the air who knows <laughs> who knows that's that's the question to ponder Let, let's see what happens in january <laughs> when, when they yeah. release the numbers <laughs> how, how close they were <laughs> Yeah, good point. But they're, they're also talking about inbound travel. And I think there's optimism that Bali will do quite well over the same period as well. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, they're, they're estimating that they're going to see travellers from the US, Australia, Singapore, Malaysia, India, um, and the UK who are also going to to make it over to Indonesia. And, you know, Australia, most of these countries actually are no big surprise, right? We know Australia is one of the highest 
arrivals into Bali, I think right now, Singapore, Malaysia, always popular destination for them, Indonesia, India is growing. And the UK, again, it's a popular long haul destination, um, particularly over that kind of year end period. So all, all very logical. Again, let's just see um, kind of what the uptick in uh, in numbers is for that period. Yeah, and it's an interesting period for forecasting for this year because, of course, it is it is a busier period. And then you would expect, um, particularly from, well, in an ordinary year, you would expect Chinese New Year to, to bring in a, a surfeit of travellers as well from across the region, but, of course, from China. That's It's quite early next year. I think it's at the end of January. Um, it doesn't matter. There'll be, there'll be many Chinese travellers visiting, but you know it, it does mean that that usually gets the year off to a, to a positive start. Um, so you've got to hope that Christmas and New Year holidays give that sort of uplift that you would maybe get from Chinese New Year. Yeah, definitely. And of course, I mean, the other big story coming out from Indonesia in November is G20, isn't it? Um, I mean, and this is something that I feel like we've also been talking about for <laughs> four years or, or at least a year, I think. And, you know, I was looking back at um, news stories from a year ago, um, and it was all talking about how G20 um, delegates would be in a travel bubble and how they would handle that. So luckily, <laughs> that hasn't come to pass, right? Indonesia is open, um, and they didn't have to operate in this this travel bubble uh, concept. But I think that just goes to show, even you know, a year ago, they were still planning, they were still ramping up um, to Bali hosting the G20. Yeah, it's interesting. I, w- I was in the US while this was taking place. I went to the Focus Right conference in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And so the coverage, the media coverage was very, very different about G20. It was very much focused on President Biden and the US sort of strategic and geopolitical. There was very little talk about, well, there was virtually no talk about travel and tourism. This was always about strategy and which leaders were meeting with whom and that kind of thing. So we really kind of missed out on, on what was being talked about in terms of the destination itself. It was all of the coverage was basically inside meeting rooms with heads of state. That was all I saw. Um, and some, I would say, quite negative coverage, actually, as well. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, definitely here, we've seen a lot more uh, kind of positive coverage in terms of the economic impact that G20 has had on Bali. So there were some reports out saying that direct spending was about $575 million. Um, that's on F&B, attractions, ground transport, shopping, accommodation, and flights as well. Um, the Indonesian Hotel and Restaurant Association has reported that um, occupancy was reaching about 70%, uh, with about 80% of staff um now kind of back to the and reaching back to about 80 percent of uh, staffing levels as well um so you know things have been moving they are um on the up it seems but of course you know the the thing about these kind of events is that what's going to be the long-term impact from them um you know we are going to inevitably see i think this this jump in tourism spend in november in indonesia in tourism arrivals in november but is that going to be a blip or is that going to continue? Um, blip, for sure. I mean, these are one-off events. They, they do have a huge impact for the time before and during and just a little bit residual afterwards. But one-off events, whether they're Olympics, whether they're G20 summits, they don't have a long-term impact. Um, I know the media likes to say that they do, but they actually don't. So, yeah, I think you're right. We will see this huge hump um, of, of tourism spending and arrivals in November. But I think it will, it will taper off quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, and I think one other thing that was quite interesting that um, was being bandied about, and this 
also for the APEC conference, which of course was in Bangkok same week, is this concept of carbon neutral um, events. So both G20 and APEC have both been talking about calculating their carbon footprint to make sure that they're carbon neutral. But perhaps the cynic in me says that this this is a bit of greenwashing, really, and kind of an afterthought. What do you think, Gary? Yeah, it is. It's tricky. It's it's a tricky one because if if you if you make statements about the offsetting and the you know the carbon um, uh, reductions that you're making, they can be easily challenged. We're seeing this at the moment with the World Cup. I think Qatar made some statements about what the how it was going to be the carbon neutral, even um, carbon negative. I think that they they were originally saying, but then you know the the, the math just doesn't seem to add up. Um, and that gets exposed quite quickly. So it's probably best not to go too much into those details. But yeah, I mean, it's tricky when, when you've got people flying in from around the world on, on private jets. How do you actually offset that? It's almost impossible. Yeah, definitely. So let's leave Indonesia and go to our home turf of Malaysia. Um, and there's been um, some interesting story there about forecasting, hasn't there, Gary? Yeah, well, it's interesting times here in Malaysia. If you don't know, listeners around the world, we've had a general election last week. We had a hung parliament for the first time in Malaysia's history, and a new prime minister was appointed or sworn in yesterday. We don't have a new government yet, so we don't have a new tourism minister. But the previous administration's tourism minister made some comments about the forecasting for this year. Now, as we look back across the year, Malaysia didn't open its borders until the second quarter of the year started to see inbound travel develop quite slowly internationally, although we had a lot of visitors from Singapore. So initially, as, as we, I think you said some a couple of times on the podcast, Hannah, it started incrementally increasing its year forecast, didn't it? So it started off saying it would have about 2 million visitors across the year, then that raised that to 4.5 million for this year. And then it sort of topped out with 9.2 million, which seemed a little bit optimistic at the time, and now it seems like Malaysia's trying to get its excuses in. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Um, so, I mean, the, the the former tourism minister had said, you know, she said the situation a- appeared promising. So that's why we increased this target. But, you know, it seems that entering the country is quite difficult. Um, and so travellers have chosen to travel elsewhere. And she says, I believe they were unable to enter the country because of visa issues. Um, and so she was she was kind of urging for a reform around visas. Now, I mean, she didn't mention which country this is referring to, but I would imagine it must be India, um, as India needs visas. And we know China needs visas, but Chinese travellers are not really travelling. Um, so I imagine that this is the difficulty that Malaysia ran into with the fact that um, Indian tourists couldn't apply um, for online visas and had to go to the high commissions um, in India in person to uh, to go submit their application, which I'm sure was a massive turnoff. Yeah, absolutely. And that has a knock-on effect, of course, with the airlines as well. If they see that it's difficult for, for travellers to come in from a particular country, they just don't add the capacity. She, she added another comment, which I thought was quite interesting. She said, relating to this visa issue, which uh, she added that we don't want Malaysia to be the people's second or third choice of travel destination be- just because of visa issues. That's quite an interesting comment. You know, is that actually because of visas or is it simply because it's just been easier for everybody to go to Thailand? So therefore, the airlines have added more capacity and it's just been easier and cheaper to go there. I don't know. I mean, it's, this is something I guess is going to take time to roll out and, and settle down. But I think it struck a note of caution that this was being said, because if you go back three or four months, there was a greater optimism, as she said. 
um, about travel and tourism this year in Malaysia, but it just doesn't seem to have kicked on in the last quarter. Would you think that's fair? Yeah, I think that that's fair to say. Yeah, I mean, definitely there was this optimism. Numbers kept increasing. Perhaps they've just now hit this this kind of plateau and without, as we keep saying, without Chinese travellers coming in, who of course accounted for a large number of, of Malaysian travel, um, a large number of travellers to Malaysia, they're perhaps now finding it difficult to to break past a certain level. Yeah. But, but having said that, I mean, I've flown through Calais a couple of times in the past couple of weeks. You have, Hannah. I thought it was quite busy. I don't know what you thought. Mm, it has been pretty busy. I've noticed a lot of Umrah groups, particularly. Um, so that's definitely taking off. And even just a check-in for Umrah, to, to check-ins for Saudi Arabia are just uh, insane every time. But, uh, I mean, the airport itself, it's quite quiet. Um, but that perhaps leads us to the, quite nicely to the, the next story, doesn't it, Gary? Yeah, I mean, Malaysia, Calais, Kuala Lumpur International Airport does need investment. I mean, it's quite clear that it hasn't really been invested in services, uh, in retail. Uh, the train between the two terminals at the moment isn't working. It does look as though they've missed a huge opportunity over the last two and a half years to invest in the airport. But it does look that there might be a reason for that. Um, because Malaysian airports has confirmed in the last week that it's actually secured extra land around the airport to build what's called an aerotropolis, which is huge um, expansion of the airport, not just for the airport, but also um, a special economic zone, um, looking very much at digital finance and digital um, uh, e-commerce uh, fulfillment. They're going to try and build that out um, around that area. But the, I mean, the origin, this, is, this goes back about five or six years when this was first promulgated. And the idea then was to turn KLA into a, an international airport with 140 million passenger capacity per year. I'm not sure if that's currently what they're expecting, but that seems huge. I mean, that, I can't believe that it would ever be able to achieve that. What, what do you think, Helen? I mean, 140 million is huge. If you think the new uh, Singapore Changi Terminal 5 is meant to, to handle 50 million, I think, um, and that, I think Terminal 1 and Terminal 3 are already handling 50 million. So, you know, if, if Changi, I, I think, I guess, combined is probably handling less, or has a capacity less than 100 million. Yeah, this just seems like a kind of outrageously huge number um, for Malaysia. I mean, you do have that domestic market, but they would really have to garner some serious transit traffic, you know, to be able to make that worthwhile, I think. Absolutely. We'll see what happens with that. It's going to be a long-term project. Um, I think there's a 99-year lease on it. So how long will it actually take to build out? I, I don't know. I, I imagine it will be done in phases as well. So let's move. We've done Indonesia and Malaysia, Hannah. Let's go next to Thailand. A couple of interesting stories there. And one of them is an outbound story, which is quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, and you know, we, we've talked um, several times about Japan reopening um, and uh, with, with Kyoji Kuramochi um, from JNTO uh, most recently. And we, we know, right, Japan is such a popular destination for Southeast Asians. We know that there has been such excitement amongst um, Southeast Asian countries to be able to visit Japan again now that they've removed um, the majority of their entry restrictions. And that's, that's panned out with the numbers. Um, so um, Japan reported their October numbers um, and Thailand was in the top four for arrivals to Japan. Now, actually, one of the countries from Southeast Asia who was in the top 10 um, previously to that was Vietnam as well. So, you know, Southeast Asia is really up there in terms of 
visitors to Japan. Like we're saying, not a surprise given that interest, but it's it's a good sign. You know, Japan is not even with the exchange rate dropping; it's still not a cheap destination to travel to. Um, and so the fact that you know numbers are really increasing there from Southeast Asia is, you know, I think probably a good portent of the potential of Southeast Asian outbound travel as we, you know, are coming out from the pandemic. Yeah, it's interesting that Thailand was in that top four. Singapore wasn't. Do you think that's just seasonal? That if we actually assess the numbers over Christmas and New Year, that Singapore would be, you know, up in the up in the higher echelons? Because I would imagine that the end of year travel outbound would be quite high do you think um yeah i imagine that yeah you're, you're probably right there i you know the october is not really a key outbound um time for singapore but definitely the year end the snow everything else i, I imagine that's really going to pick up from both uh, singapore and malaysia yeah i would agree i was talking to quite a few people at focus right last week about japan and I, it's quite interesting the the, the stateside view of japan and I don't think it's quite realized just the huge potential that it has for in, intra-regional travel, um, particularly once China reopens. You know, Japan is is going to be certainly challenging Thailand for the most visited country in the region. And I will, will surpass it, I would think, quite easily in future. Um, Japan is just so hot, isn't it? Everybody I speak to in, in the region seems to want to travel to Japan. Um, and you've been there twice quite recently. What did, what did you find? What, what did you sort of feel? Did you feel it was coming back? Yeah, I mean, if I compare my two trips, so the first one was in September, and you still had to get visas. Um, and you know, you could only go in it with a tour group. So I had to you know, enter on a business visa. This second trip, no visas. Um, so even if I just think about the airport at Narita, when I was checking in to go home, you know, September, no queues. Um, this time around, big queues to check in at the terminal. Um, I was surrounded by other Southeast Asians. There were ties sat on my table. I could see Viet jet planes, two Viet jet planes out on the tarmac. Um, so I did get the feeling that things were um, slowly increasing, but there's a long way. There's a long, long way to go um, for Japan. And, you know, one of the interesting things was um, I went back to Sapporo, so Hokkaido. Um, and Sapporo it is a pretty popular destination with Singaporeans, with Malaysians. Um, and there were previously direct international flights, but the international airport right now, the international terminal there is is pretty dead. There, there are very, very few international flights. So I would say that I think things are picking up when it get, comes to getting into Tokyo. Um, but, you know, that spreading out, that recovery across the country um, is still far from there yet. Yeah, I would agree. Still early days, but certainly very, very positive signs, I'd, I'd say, in the first couple of months since it reopened. Um, let's look at another quick story, Hannah, related to Thailand. Is this an inbound or is this an outbound story? This is a new flight route. Which way do you see it going? Uh, I think it's probably inbound, really. But this this is a kind of interesting one, a short one, like you said, Gary. But Air Canada have announced that they're going to launch Vancouver to Bangkok um, flights, which is going to be their first direct Thailand to North American service um, in 10 years. Um, so I found that quite interesting that we're starting to get these new uh, intercontinental um, connections that haven't been around, but suddenly they're waking up to different markets. So I found that quite interesting, but I presume it's more of a inbound Canadians into Thailand play rather than necessarily ties into Canada. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I'll just link into the next story. So I spent 
some of my time, quite a lot of my time over the past two weeks uh, in transit at Taipei International Airport. So I've actually been looking quite closely at the Ta Taiwanese outbound market. Now, we mentioned there Japan, Taiwanese are traveling to Japan in, in quite big numbers at the moment. But two of their airlines have started introducing new flight routes, uh, sorry, new flight services to Vietnam, which I think is quite interesting. There's opportunities in both directions, I think, there. Um, Taiwanese traveling to Vietnam and Vietnamese traveling to Taiwan. But, Hannah, let's talk about this story that we've been tracking for quite a while. You have specifically. Um, and we seem to be moving towards a resolution. Tell us more. <laughs> yes. So this was the Vietnam New Passports Without a Birthplace saga. Um, so you, you might remember um, from 1st of July, uh, new passports were issued uh, by the Vietnamese government, but they did not include the place of birth, which they argued, you know, conforms to um, ICAO standards. They said it doesn't necessarily have to be included. Many nations don't. However, this then starts to become an issue for many Schengen countries. So countries like Germany, Czech Republic, um, Spain actually started to suspend the recognition of these passports and demand that they had to, Vietnamese travelers had to get an additional kind of piece of paper from the government with that additional information. Um, and I mean, this has been ding-donging and the government then kind of issued a statement saying, okay, well, if you need the place of birth, you can go and get this additional endorsement into your passport. But finally, the government seemed to have given up on that idea and have officially agreed to add the place of birth information back into these new passports. Um, so, you know, for those people who had to, you know, apply for a new passport and then go through this whole circus um, I feel pretty sorry for them but at least the the saga is now ending for those who need new passports it's, it's a remarkable story and Hannah a remarkable phrase ding-donging I do like that one <laughs> thank you it's the, the only <laughs> the only explanation for it let's move from Vietnam to Cambodia so what's happening in Cambodia Gary so we're back to tourism forecasting, Hannah, and Cambodia is saying that it's looking towards having 2 million visitors this year, 2 million visitors across the whole year internationally. Um, an uplift in domestic tourists looking at around about 11 million visitors traveling domestically within the country this year. Now, those figures have both been uplifted in recent months. Initially, Cambodia was saying it would have around about 1.3 million international arrivals. I think it was looking at around about 9 or 10 million domestic travelers. A bit of an uplift. And I think, again, that's because there's probably stronger sentiment towards the end of the year, rounding out the year with, with, the more, uh, with more travelers in, in, in directions around the country. Um, but the figure that they're now stating for future has been pushed into 2028, Hannah. So in 2028, it's quite a few years down the road, Cambodia says it will attract 7.5 million international tourists and 16 million domestic tourists. Big numbers. That's quite an increase, isn't it? From, from 2 million to 7.5 million. I mean, yes, they've got some massive infrastructure developments going on right now, a lot of Chinese developments. And of course, we haven't seen the China market reopened to Cambodia yet so that could be a, a big difference um, but that's um, really aiming high. I mean I think one interesting thing if we're looking about this year why perhaps they're able to increase those forecasts is also just because travel into the region is also increasing. If you look at Thailand um, you know I was very very cynical <laughs> was that they could hit their 10 million and it, it looks like they're probably going to surpass that now and I can't help but think that that's probably also benefiting Cambodia because we know 
that Cambodia traditionally is not seen as a mono country destination. Um, people are more likely to combine it, quite likely to combine it with a country like Thailand. Um, so I imagine as Thai um, arrivals increase, those to Cambodia will do as well. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was, I was looking back at the figures for 2019, 6.6 million international arrivals in 2019. So there's a lot of ground to make up from 2 million this year. Um, it didn't say when they expect to, to hit that figure, but if they're predicting 7.5 million for 2028, that suggests that they don't expect to get back to parity with 2019 anytime soon, I would say. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think you're right. So, shall we move to another um, tiny country we don't really talk a lot about? Yeah, let's take a flight to the island of Borneo and to Brunei. We don't talk about it enough, Hannah. has been closed and it's been quite restricted in terms of travel and tourism, but it's starting to open up and you're starting to see more coverage in the local newspapers there now about trying to expand its flight network. Obviously, it used to have quite good connections with China. We're starting to see more Chinese traveling into Brunei in 2018 and 2019. That's not going to happen anytime soon. It was looking at other markets. Bangladesh, I think, was one that it was looking to try and open up direct flights to. Um, but, you know, at, at the moment, travelers do seem to be coming back. It's a small country. It's a small market, Hannah, but it seems to be making incremental progress. Yes. I mean, we've seen 15 hotels. Uh, they said they'd reported a hike in room bookings uh, with a 50% increase. I mean, if you look at the actual numbers, it, it goes from something like 8,271 bookings to 12,406. So it, these are still very small numbers. I mean, Brunei is small, but, you know, 12,000 hotel bookings is, is still quite a low amount. Um, but they've said industry is very fluid and they anticipate a significant increase in travelers on North Asian border reopening. So there we go. There you go. It's that same hint about um, China. Yeah, absolutely agree. And it's on my um, list for next year. I really want to go hiking in Brunei. I think I've said this several times, but it is on my list. So hopefully I'll try and get there, maybe in April. Mm, nice. Um, let's go over to the Philippines, um, not so far from Borneo. Um, and Philippines, the big news there is that they have finally removed its testing requirements um, for vaccinated and non-vaccinated travellers. Now, you may be saying, hang on, did they have testing requirements for vaccinated travellers? And the Philippines were a bit of a tricky case because they were one of the few countries where you had to actually be triple vaccinated to avoid having to be tested. So that's now been removed. So even if you are fully vaccinated, you, you know, you, you've undergone those two primary courses, um, you now won't need to be tested. And, and unvaccinated travellers will need to have an antigen test uh, within 24 hours of departure. They still can't do self-tests, but it's a step forward, um, particularly for those travellers who you know, have had those double dose, but maybe are not triple vaccinated. No, they don't need to test. So step by step for the Philippines. Yeah, I, I remain confused by the Philippines. I mean, you've been tracking it much more closely during the pandemic and since. And it has been probably, I would say, is it the most complex country in, in, in the region in terms of the restrictions and where they apply different rules regionally? And then, like you said, these different rules on testing for vaccinated and unvaccinated, it still seems quite complicated. It is. It is, definitely. And, you know, it's one question to get in, but you're still seeing news stories now about regions lifting these requirements for domestic travellers. So the Philippines really is this, this mix of different travel requirements that's made things very complex. Um, but, you know, when you look at, um, you know, kind of aviation data, 
domestic flights now at Manila's um, international airport have now surpassed um, 2019 levels. Um, so somehow, despite all of these very confusing regulations, domestic travelers are still traveling. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. So that's seven countries we've been to, Hannah. We've got one more to go. Probably the most difficult country in the region to assess, to analyze, and also to travel to. Uh, that's Myanmar, Hannah. There's going to be uh, the Myanmar Tourism Mart is actually going to happen, but this is going to be virtual, isn't it? It's not actually happening in person over the next few days. What do we think about this? I mean, is it's a difficult situation for Myanmar at the moment. It's being isolated from ASEAN, really. A lot of the, the meetings that are being held, the junta is, is, is being excluded from those. It wants to open up to, to tourism, but it's a tricky kind of balancing act. Where are we at with that, do you think? Oh, it's so complicated, isn't it? Um, and we probably need to do another a deep dive into to Myanmar because it, it comes down to the whole, is it ethically right to, to travel to a country where your, your money may be supporting <laughs> civilian oppression? Um, and certainly there's still a lot going on um, you know, in, in terms of atrocities being committed against their own civilians. Um, so, I mean, of course, there are always going to be international tourists who want to travel um, to the country. And, you know, the Myanmar Tourism Marketing Association, yeah, they probably need to keep those, those, those connections with the trade alive, right? Even if perhaps they're saying to them, don't come now, guys, perhaps come when things are, you know, back on the right path. It's important to keep those connections alive. But it's difficult, even in terms of um, remittances. I was reading recently that that's one of the issues that Myanmar tour operators now face. There are so many sanctions, economic sanctions, um, that it's very difficult for international travelers to remit money, um, even to Myanmar tour operators. Um, so that also provides a whole, a whole headache as well, even in terms of operational issues. So it's, it's, it's a massive issue. But I, I thought it was quite interesting that they were holding um, this tourism mark albeit virtually. Yeah, and I think also it, it, it shows to some degree a degree of faith, I guess, towards the airlines because they want to keep those services flying. People from Myanmar still want to get out. They still want to travel outbound. Um, so you don't want to stop the flights coming in because then you, you jam up the whole, the whole system. And you have to be prepared for in future if there is some kind of demand to, to return to Myanmar from, from around the region or, or even beyond. It has to be ready to respond to that. But it is difficult times and... Yeah, well, I guess we'll track this through through 2023, Hannah. I guess at the moment, it's still very, very early days for knowing what will happen there. Yeah, I, I can't see any um, resolution coming yet, unfortunately. So on that slightly depressing note, unfortunately, um, that brings us to a close of this week's show. Um, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. And of course, as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today. We look forward to talking more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia with you again soon. Mm-hmm.